The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Good evening. It's good to see you. It's good to have you here tonight. Tonight we're going to start by praying for Uvalde, Texas. And, um, you know, whether you want to join in with those around you or you prefer to pray on your own, it's totally up to you. I had asked that you would pray for families like ours, for churches and a small community where people know each other. And sometimes that's good if you've been from a small town. town sometimes that's not so good. Um, but tight-knit relationships that have been devastated by evil. I ask that you would pray for a community, a state, and our country. And we need to realize that in some ways, what has taken place over the last couple of days reaches around the world. And so I'm going to ask you now to go ahead and, and spend, we're going to spend a handful of minutes uh, praying, and then I will conclude or wrap up. Can I ask you a favor? Let's weep with those who weep. Let's keep our political opinions to ourselves. You have a right to your political opinion. I would die for you to have your own opinion. But tonight, let's lay those things aside and just weep with those who weep. Is that good? Okay, let's pray. Father, the scripture tells us that you grieve and that you mourn with us, that you hold us. And, and Lord, whether the emotion that we think, feel or experience is bewilderment or frustration or even anger, you, you hold us. You understand that we don't understand. And so, Lord, this evening we do pray for a community. We do pray for families, the state of Texas, and our country. And we pray that you will heal their broken hearts, but that you will heal our broken nation. That, that so many of us that are divided, Lord, that you would bring us back together. Not that we believe the same things or have the same... Um, philosophical opinions on things, but Lord, that we would see that beyond those things, that we each one were created in the image of God, and that we can respectfully have conversations, and we can, we cannot agree on things, but still be Americans, still be Christians. Jesus, it was your words to your disciples that the world, the non-believers, would know that we are your disciples, your learners, your followers, by the love that we have one for another. And so our hearts break tonight for this community, for these families, on, on both sides of the story, Lord. Such heartbreak. And we ask you, Jesus, to heal our land. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The uh, title of tonight's Bible study is that being tempted is not a sin. And I don't know if I'm reading more into this personally than what you experience, but sometimes when I 
am tempted to do something that I know I'm not supposed to do, and it usually involves cookies that my wife has, has made and given me very strict instructions that they're to cool on the counter. And there's this, um, well, it's me. I can't blame it on anyone or anything else, but I, I've learned how to remove a cookie and kind of move the other ones around so that you can't tell it was gone, but wouldn't you know that she counts them? <laughs> She counts them, and she can tell me exactly how many I've had. And she knows, because we've been together since we were 15 years old, that I typically insert the entire cookie into my mouth. I know this is embarrassing to you. Without, without biting it, I eat the entire thing. So I want you to know tonight that when you're tempted to take that cookie, uh, when, when you and I meet in a, in a very tight parking lot, and there's one spot, and you see me and I see you, and uh, you cover up the Maranatha Chapel bumper sticker and you pull in in front of me and you give me that big smile that, that, that being tempted isn't a sin. And I don't know why. I don't know, is this you or is it just me? That I feel tempted and then I feel bad. And I should feel good that I didn't give in to the temptation. Now, when it comes to cookies, I don't think I'm going to have victory in that area of my life. But, um, but being tempted, no, and I want you to understand that. That, that there is in each one of our lives as Christians, there is that inward struggle to say no to sin, and that's good. It's a good sign. Um, condemnation is not from God. Condemnation is not from God. He will not condemn you, no matter what you do. I'm not giving you license to go out and sin, but he will not condemn you. He refuses to condemn you because his son was condemned in your place. His son, Jesus, died and was judged in your place. So tonight we're going to be in Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, but we're going to spend some time in Matthew chapter 4, verses 3 through 11. You'll find out why. Our takeaway, and this is not a political statement. I was thinking after I wrote this down and had all my notes printed up and submitted them to the media department so that they could make the slides and, and you know, that somebody might take the wrong thing. But Trump, <laughs> truth trumps temptation. Truth, God's word, it trumps temptation. That when you and I are tempted, that we can turn to God's word in the same way that Jesus will tonight. And, and God will give us strength through his word. So then truth, God's word, trumps or overcomes temptation. Our response to an opportunity or a desire to sin, Jesus will show us tonight in our example. And this, this story is in three of the gospels. Matthew, uh, Mark, obviously, and then in Luke. But Mark's gospel only has two verses. Remember, he's fast-paced. He's moving quickly. He's given us snapshots and a photo album of the entire story. Matthew's gospel, which we'll be in tonight as well, has 11 verses, and Luke's, Luke's has 13. Now, let me qualify something. Maybe this is more of a disclaimer. Um, some of you saw me earlier today. Uh, I was in the back worshiping, and you saw me with a mask on. The reason I have a mask on is, is, is because last night I came down with some cold symptoms. So I've been gone all day. And if you think that I've been tonight that I buffer a little more than usual, it's because I'm on cold medication. So, so if I say anything too wild, I have a good excuse. I want you to know that Mark's gospel combines Jesus' baptism, which we covered last week, his baptism, his anointing of the Spirit, the Father's declaration, this is my beloved Son, you are my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased, with the 40 days in the wilderness. They're, 
They're linked together. This wonderful mountain high, uh, mountaintop experience and this incredible challenge, probably a challenge that no other man has ever experienced. Jesus' experience. I want you to keep in mind tonight that Jesus is by himself. We'll talk a little bit about his weakened state, but he's by himself. And I don't know if you ever feel like you're by yourself. As a matter of fact, the very fact that we have the record means that at some point in time, Jesus shared this with his disciples. When we think about 40 days in the wilderness, I want you to think almost six weeks, six weeks without food, being exposed to the elements, and that he is physically near death. So, so we're seeing Jesus in a way that we don't usually see him. Our, our exposure to him is very, very different, and yet the Gospels want us to see him near death. Some ask, why was Jesus tempted? He's never done anything wrong, right? This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. I believe that Jesus' obedience through the 40 days of fasting and being tempted by Satan was to prove that he is the beloved son of God. And Mark wants you to know that so that you can trust in him when you go through your temptation, when you go through your difficulties. I believe that no one has ever experienced the level of temptation that Jesus withstood. Why was Jesus tempted? I, I believe another reason he was tempted was that he could serve as an example to you and I when we're tempted. Not if we're tempted, right? Don't leave me hanging up here. But when we're tempted, we can look to him in the pages of Scripture and follow his example. When he was solicited to sin, he responds with God's word. He responds with the word of God. So then enticement to sin is met with truth. I, I'm gonna, I wasn't planning on doing this, but we're going to see in a couple of weeks Granted, next week is worship night, but we're going to see Jesus in a synagogue, likely in Capernaum. And while he's teaching, a demonic entity manifests in an individual. And Jesus speaks to it and he says, go. That is what I believe is a power encounter. God's power commanding an inferior evil spirit to be gone and it leaves. What we have before us today is a truth encounter, and this is what you and I typically will experience, a truth encounter. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18, the writer of Hebrews says, again, chapter 2, verse 18, for because he has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That is, he is able to bring aid to you and to me in the midst of our temptation. It's not as though we've been abandoned or left alone. We have the Spirit within us. We have God's words in its totality. And then we have Jesus. But we, we may ask Jesus for the power to say no to sin. Now, now, maybe it's my personality, but I don't blame anybody or anything else for my sin. I sin because I am weak. I am sin because I don't do what I should do. But I don't blame anything or anyone else for my sin. I, I know, you're, you're, you probably think this guy's no good for nothing. Well, my wife's here tonight. You can ask her. She can confirm what you're thinking. 
The other question that people ask is, could Jesus sin? He's God, right? So could he sin? So along with being physically exhausted, thirsty, and hungry, it is, listen, this is important for you to understand, it is Jesus' human nature that is being tested. It's his human nature. It's the part of him that's like you and like me that's being tested. But the union of his divinity and humanity made it impossible for him to sin. I want you to think about it this way, that the Lord felt, felt the full weight of temptation, but it could not crush him. I know you would never guess that I go to the gym sometimes, and while I'm there, I'm watching these you know, these guys doing the bench press, and there's these plates, these many, many uh, weight plates, and they're stacked up on the end, or, or maybe they're sitting down in this machine, and they, they push the weight up. It, it's incredible to me. It's just phenomenal to me. And sometimes when they yell, it frightens me. And when I go to find my weights, it's usually the paperweight that's at the desk with those that are watching over it. Jesus felt the full weight of sin in a way that no other human being has, and he withstood it. And that's what makes it possible for him to help you and me because he understands our propensity to sin. A little more specific here is that Jesus withstood the pull to alleviate physical suffering through using, through use. Jesus withstood the pull to alleviate physical suffering through the use of his divine power. That is, that his divine power was available, but he chose not to use it. It wasn't clear to me. If he turned rocks into bread to satisfy hunger, then he would no longer be trusting God to sustain him. And I think we need to be careful. I think we need to be very careful that if you and I have a level of power, either, either in you know, because of a position that we have or finances that we have or a gift that we have, we never use that for ourselves. We use it for others. That's how this thing works. We never build a platform or a ministry for ourselves. We use our gifting and our ability to serve others. That's the way the church is different than the world. The world will feed our pride, and we have pride. At least I do. I don't know about you. The issue of sin is either trusting God or ourselves. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, Peter writes of Jesus, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He was perfect. He withstood temptation. He was perfect. I'm going to talk a little bit about who is the devil. This isn't exhaustive. This isn't, this isn't everything there is like in a systematic or biblical, biblical theology. But I want you to know tonight that Satan is a fallen spirit. I also want you to know that Satan was created by God initially holy or without sin, and that sometime in eternity past, he fell. And, and let me say it like this, not to be disrespectful, but what God created beautiful became corrupted. He's a corruption of what God initially intended for Satan to be. And he led a group of spirits, other angels or spirits, in rebellion against God. And I'm not going to say too much about this, except we see the result of that rebellion around us, unfortunately, every day. I 
I believe that the earth and its atmosphere are populated by these fallen spirits. I believe they're like invisible currents that are around us. We can't see it, but we see the results of it. Remember Jesus said of the Holy Spirit, you can't see him, but you could see in the same way you could see the wind move the trees. Over here we have all these sycamore and eucalyptus. My office is over here. The window goes in that direction on a windy day. I stop working. Don't tell Daniel. I stop working and I watch those trees sway back and forth and the hawks dancing on the top of the trees. These demons or fallen spirits are against God. They're against God, his plan, and his people. Their hostility is frequently seen through false belief systems, which influence not only individuals, but also nations. When you see countries, let me say this differently. When you see a highly educated country a country that has developed the arts, like music and, 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 and art, and, and they have high academic learning, and you see them doing things that are almost animal-like, you, I would suggest to you that you are seeing the outworking of demonic entities, of powers and principalities. Again, that, my intent isn't to go into this too deeply, but I want you to understand Satan and his kingdom. God's presence means life and light. Where God is, there is life and there's light. When I mean light, I mean truth. Some of you here tonight, your greatest need is spiritual life and your greatest desire is to have truth. Evil rules through death, darkness, and deception. So the fourth thing, so why was Jesus tempted? Could Jesus sin? Who is the devil? I'm going to, the next question I'm going to answer is, what does this evil influence look like? And I'm going to point you to James chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. And probably the most difficult thing in me reading this to you is it's written to Christians. It's written to the church. Actually, the church is scattered abroad by persecution. So in James 3, beginning in verse 14, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes from above or heaven. But listen to this. This wisdom is earthly, it's unspiritual, and it is demonic. This is the currency. This is the, the sphere of influence that the devil uses. And James is saying you can tell when it's ruling in an individual life. You can tell when it's influencing your life when you see bitter jealousy, selfish ambition. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, verse 16, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Now listen to a little commentary of, uh, by Jesus in speaking to the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the uh, Sadducees. In John chapter 8, verse 44, John 8, 44, where Jesus says, you are of your father the devil. It's not a compliment. And these are the religious leaders. These are the people who, who the common people would have said, these people are close to God. You are of your father, the devil, and you will do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. Remember, they were planning on murdering Jesus. We'll see that in a couple of Bible studies. And does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his own, he speaks out of, excuse me, his own character. Listen to these last words, for he is a liar and the father or the originator of lies. 
When I heard the word murder, I looked that up. And I want you to think of this illustration. Cain waiting for his brother. His brother comes. And this is important. And Cain had nurtured resentment against God and against his brother. And when he had opportunity, it's it's interesting that when God speaks to Cain, he goes, you need to be careful because sin is crouching at the door. He personifies sin. And then when the opportunity arose, he took his brother and he took his life. Remember what we said about Satan? He is a murderer. Remember what, remember what, what the religious leaders were doing? They were planning to murder Jesus. I found one of the most interesting verses in all of the Bible in Genesis chapter 4, verse 10, where God says to Cain after the murder, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. We, it would be a mistake, my friends, tonight if we were to assume that God doesn't know or notice when a murder takes place and that he cares. Your brother's blood is crying to me. I can hear it from the ground. Some theologians said that by the time you get to the global flood, and yes, I believe it's literal and I believe it's global, that a part of the judgment represents in all the people who had been murdered and whose blood cried from the ground for justice. I'm glad smarter men than me say that, but it makes sense. In uh, the breaking of the fifth seal from Revelation chapter 6, verse 10, the saints who are underneath the altar say, O sovereign Lord, how holy and true, how long before you will judge, listen to this word, and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. And these were the martyrs that came out. So my friends, as we sit here tonight, God knows, he understands, and he will judge those. Jesus said of Satan, again, there is no truth in him. In the wilderness with, uh, in the wilderness with Jesus, as was the case in the Garden of Eden, Satan speaks lies that question God's goodness. And, and you and I experience it. Maybe it's more subtle because we're, we're Western-minded, Western-thinking people. But whenever you encounter a thought or an idea, a philosophy, a teaching, maybe you're in a university, and God's goodness is being questioned and his reputation is being maligned, I would suggest to you that the enemy, the enemy is influencing that determination. So, meaning, all of this means uh, that you and I consistently resist invisible currents of thoughts and accusations. That, that every day you and I move through a world, oh, we can't see them, but there are these invisible currents of thoughts that are anti-God and who accuse you or condemn you, as I said earlier meaning that you and I consistently reject the idea that God is unfair or restrictive in any way. That you and I, it's ongoing work in our minds to say, no, God is fair, God is just, God is good. You might say that we preach to ourselves. And then lastly, this means that you and I consistently assert truth in the face of lies about God and ourselves. I want to read you a very famous quote. And it's so famous that I had a hard time finding it, even with Google and all of that stuff. This is from a book uh, C.S. Lewis wrote called The Screwtape Letters. 
Very, very interesting. I don't know if any of you have had an opportunity to, to read it. But the reason I couldn't find it is because the quote doesn't come from the book. It comes from the preface. This is the quote. Lewis, right? C.S. Lewis. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race, humanity, can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. That is, we're so scientific that we don't believe they exist. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and an unhealthy interest in them. That is, they dominate our thought life. We blame them for everything. My friends, if you're a Christian, Jesus has completely defeated the enemy. They themselves, the devils in parentheses, are equally pleased by both heirs, and hail a materialist as well as or a magician with the same delight. I, I, I used that quote when I was a youth pastor more years uh, ago than I would like to, to acknowledge, but I feel like this is so true. There's a balance. They're around us. They attempt to influence us, but they are not. They are not the cause of all things. So let's go ahead and look at the uh, tempted uh, first provision. So uh, Mark 1, 12 and 13. So Jesus is in the wilderness. He's by himself. And uh, well, he's not by himself yet in verse 12. He's tempted by Satan. The spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. That should catch your attention. He comes out of the water. The skies, Mark says, are ripped open. There's a violence to it. And God's word comes down. It's spoken. It's profound to the son. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then what happens? He's driven further into the wilderness. Verse 13. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. Now, theologians believe that what we're looking at tonight, and I agree, take place at the conclusion of those 40 days. I believe that it's possible that for all of the 40 days, he was being tempted by Satan. Eh, if you don't agree, that's okay. And he was with the wild animals, which may be a reference to Eden, and the angels were ministering to him. When I talked about the wild animals, it may also be a reference to the danger that he may have experienced. So please know that Jesus' baptism and his, and his temptation are linked by the word immediately. The same spirit who empowered Jesus for ministry now drives him deeper and deeper into the desert. This isn't what I would explain, expect. I mean, you're like, come on, give me the miracles, give me the deliverance, give me the great discourses of truth. But that's not what God does. He drives them into the desert. The terminology is forceful. To a first century Jew, the, the, the wilderness represents the unknown, represents danger. People die for lack of water and food and exposure to excessive heat. Now, I told you a couple of weeks ago that Wanda and I celebrated our 47 uh, wedding anniversary. And, and from time to time when we were younger, we don't get a chance to do this. And I don't even know why I'm saying we get a chance to do this, but we would go to a theme park. Now, you need to know that my wife loves roller coasters. The higher they go and the, you know, the, the more the descent, you know, going straight down, I'm not so much. 
You know, the way they design roller coasters, at least the wooden roller coasters, I, I know I'm probably dating myself here, but they have this, you know, they whip you around a little bit, you think, I got this, and, and they have, like, not even a seatbelt across you. They have a little bar, which I, I, I protest that, but, you know, I want to be, like, locked in, one with the thing, and so, and then all of a sudden, this thing whips around and it starts climbing. Click, 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 click. I'm not saying it's high, but at Magic Mountain, I mean, the space shuttle's going by, satellites are going by. Click, 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 click. I'd be lying to you if I didn't tell you that I rededicate my life to Christ every time we get at the very top. So, so Danny, the big chicken, feathers flying everywhere, he's holding on to this thing. I wedge my legs in there, I'm holding on, and my eyes are closed. I'm not afraid to tell you that. My wife is like, her hands straight. We haven't even started the, you know, descent into the abyss yet. And her hands are like straight up. And she's yelling at the top of her lungs, lift up your hands and open your eyes. And I'm going, no. It's so bad that I confess sins that I've never committed. I just want to make sure I have my bases covered. And then we go down and around and around and around, and I'm speaking in tongues, and I'm going, oh, it comes to an end. And she goes, that was amazing. And I'm going, I'm going to die. I'm going to. Isn't it interesting that God would put two people who are so different together? She stretches me. I don't stretch her. I don't know why. You know? But I do have my limitations. The wilderness or the desert represents the unknown. And you have a wilderness. You have that part of your life that's the unknown. Uh, uh, for me, a part of my life was, uh, was my mom's side of the family. We never talked about them. It was the unknown. In a Hispanic family, if they tell you don't talk about it, you don't talk about it. The wilderness was dangerous. People died for lack of food and water, the very basics. And then there's exposure to the heat. Now, let me ask you these questions, these rhetorical questions. You don't need to answer, answer them. But could it be that being spirit-led means that life gets harder rather than easier? Could it mean that the spirit-filled life gets more difficult than it does easier? The second question I'm going to ask you is not, no easier than that one. Could it be that the spirit-filled life is sometimes dangerous and not safe? Could it be that it's dangerous and not safe, that it's the unknown, that people perish there. Could it be that God calls us to trust him in the wilderness? There's a Chinese military uh, strategist named Sun Tzu. He was born in 544 BC, if you've never heard of him, but he's quoted in a book called The Art of War that is used today. And his quote is this. The highest form of generalship or leadership in the military is to conquer the enemy by strategy, by thinking things through, by having a plan. And Paul writes of Satan's strategy in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10, 11 and 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, where Paul writes, Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven... If I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of God. Something happens in the presence of God. And there was this individual, I'll talk about it in a minute. There was this individual 
who was disciplined by the church, and then Paul says, that's enough. The discipline has to come to an end. The desired outcome of any discipline is that a person would be reconciled to the community, reconciled to the family, reconciled to to the relationship, reconciled to church. And Paul says that we've come to the time and the place where now we need to restore this person. Now we need to, listen, how does that restoration take place? Now we need to forgive. And in doing so, counteract Satan's plan. That when we don't forgive, we're still Christians, we're still spirit-filled, we're still loving Jesus, but when we don't forgive, we fall into the enemy's hands. So tonight we're going to look at three temptations again from Matthew's gospel. If you need to turn there, we're going to be in uh, chapters 4. And we're going to go through verses 3 through 11, I believe. Yep, that's it. So I want you to remember this. Jesus has been sent into the wilderness for the purpose of fasting for 40 days. And he's been done so. This has happened by the will of God, but by the Spirit. The first thing Satan does is he questions God's goodness by highlighting the lack of provision. We talk about Jesus didn't have anything to eat. Secondly, Satan twists a verse from Psalm 91 to question God's protection. And then lastly, the devil tempts Jesus to circumvent the cross by worshiping him. That is the devil. The three temptations question the Father's declaration at Jesus' baptism, you are my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. So first provision. Again, Matthew chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. And the tempter, which also can mean slanderer or accuser. Now that's Bible speak for saying pay attention. When you are slandered, when you are accused, when you are tempted, it is the enemy. It is not God. It is the enemies behind it. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, so questioning what the father said at Jesus' baptism, command these stones, and I'm sure there were many, to become loaves of bread. But he answered, this is Jesus' reply. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. It is written. Remember I said early on, this is a truth encounter. There's no yelling or screaming or rolling around on the ground. This is engaging the enemy with truth. This is how you and I engage the enemy with truth. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Satan challenges God's word. If, if you, if you are the son of God. Remember what the serpent said in the garden to Eve? To Eve? He said to her, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So again, the idea of casting, casting doubt upon God's word. The other thing under provision is Satan suggests that Jesus uses divine power to satisfy his hunger. I've already talked about that. But his fasting at this point in time is in response to an act of obedience. And Jesus turns Satan back with truth. The second temptation revolves around protection in Matthew chapter 4, verses 5 through 7. So then the devil took him up to the holy city, which is Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. Now there's a historian, um, uh, first century historian named Josephus. He was Jewish. He tells us that the south, southwest corner of the temple was 450 feet above the Kidron Valley, the pinnacle of the temple. And the devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, again, that questioning, if you are the Son of God. And the reason I bring that out is because sometimes 
The enemy comes to you and says, are you really a Christian? Are you really a Christian? And there, he, he wants to cause you to doubt the fact that you, by faith, are a son and daughter of God. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, or they will catch you, lest you strike your foot against a stone. That's from Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. I'll talk about that more in a second. Verse 7, Jesus said to him, again, it is written, another quote from Deuteronomy, this time chapter 6, verse 16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Two things here. The casting of doubt as to the Father's proclamation about Jesus, but then also the misquoting of Scripture. Anybody who teaches the Bible wants you to check out what they say. Anybody. As a matter of fact, if you have somebody who teaches the Bible and you approach them, you know, with, hey, when you said this and you can show them that it wasn't right and they don't receive it, then don't listen to them anymore. If you receive a prophecy, I think it's 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, I want to say beginning in verse 19, 20, and 21, you are to test it. You are to test it. You are responsible to take that word from the Lord, word from the prophet, and you are to test it and hold it up against Scripture. What the devil is doing right here is he's quoting a passage, but he's manipulating, he's twisting it in order to try and trip Jesus up. Now, remember, one of the reasons we study this is so that we can learn the strategies of the enemy. I, I feel that sometimes, and you're getting a little bit of my edit, uh, editorial here, I feel that sometimes we want to so encourage the moving of the Spirit that we lose all discernment. I, I remember the verse in the book of Acts regarding the Bereans that said that even the Apostle Paul, they went and made sure that the things that he taught were so. That's all I'm going to say on my editorial. Misquoting scripture, Satan quotes a portion of Psalm 91, which says, he omits a portion of Psalm 91, which says, to guard you in all of your ways, or to guard you in all of your righteous ways, which is another way of saying your obedience. Second, Satan says, prove that God loves you by jumping off the pinnacle of the temple. God has said to Jesus, with you I am well pleased, so then force God to prove to you that he loves you. Put yourself in a position or a situation where if you do this, you're forcing God. This isn't faith. It's presumption. You know, sometimes, oh, I don't know why I'm doing this. I'm getting myself in trouble here. But sometimes we have a healing and, and, and a person says, well, I'm, I'm going to stop taking my meds. And I say, don't do that. Go to your doctor and make sure, confirm that you're, that you're healed. God works a miracle. You don't have to be afraid. And then follow your doctor's orders. He will confirm the healing. And then the last temptation regards power. In Matthew 4, 8, it says, and again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. Obviously, this was miraculous. So yes, the devil can work miracles. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, Deuteronomy 6, 13. 
You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. It's very interesting to me that Jesus doesn't dispute the fact that Satan at that time, I believe things are different now, but at that time, the God of this world and the prince of the power of the air had the authority to give Jesus something. I'm not sure what that means, but he had the, uh, he, he, he had the authority to do that. And I'm not so sure that that exists today. But some believe that when Adam sinned, he forfeited stewardship of earth to Satan. And Satan is saying, if you will come, this is what he's saying. He says, if you will come and kneel down one time and worship me one time, put yourself before me just one time, I'll give it all to you. And Jesus doesn't in any way challenge his ability to do that. My friends, I'm almost done. How many things in our world demand that we worship them, that we give our time and attention, our loyalty, our finances to them? Jesus says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only. Only shall you serve him. I want to read to you from Colossians 13, 15, and then I will be done. Paul writes, And you who were dead in your trespasses and sins, that reminds me of Ephesians chapter 2, and you, and these are Gentiles, you who were dead in your trespasses and sins, that is the spiritual death, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, listen, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. What happened when he nailed it to the cross? Hear this, my friends. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. Those are spiritual entities in the kingdom of darkness, the rulers and the authorities, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So I'm going to close with this. I want, you to, I want you to, as we're done here, I'll be, be done as soon as I can. As we're done here, I want you to leave doing me a favor. Oh, no roller coasters. Okay. No magic mountain. I want you to leave here tonight, and I want to ask you, do you understand your Bible? When you read your Bible, do you understand what it says? Do you understand what it means? I know I'm in some ways, I'm probably frustrating some of you. Do you understand your Bible? If not, will you do me a favor and find a Bible that you understand? All night I've been talking about using the Word of God to come against temptation. So my question to you is, do you understand the Bible? Whether you're a new believer, the Bible's new to you, whether you have great learning aptitude or reading aptitude or you don't, do you understand the Bible? And I want to give you three different kinds of Bibles. One is called a word-for-word translation. So if you have like an English Standard Version or a King James Version or a New King James Version or an Amplified Version, that is more of a word. That is, they go to the manuscripts and they bring word-for-word from from the, the Greek, the Hebrew, and the Aramaic, they bring it over into English. Now, reading this is a little more, is a little, you need a four-wheel drive sometimes to get through it, but it's not as smooth. And then another 
kind of translation isn't word for word, although they use the original manuscripts. Well, they're not original, but copies of the original manuscripts. They have a thought for thought. So word for word, thought for thought. You want me to tell you what kind of Bibles are thought for thought? And I will. If you have an NIV, if you have the um, New Jerusalem, New American Bible, New Revised Standard Version. I'm reading it out of my notes because I don't know all these translations. There's so many. And then there's a third type. So there's word for word. It's rough because you're, you're taking the original language and you're putting it in English. And then there's thought for thought. There's a little more work to that. That is to bring it over so that you understand the thought. And then there's a paraphrase. When I think of the paraphrase, I think about the message. Eugene Peterson. A paraphrase aims to explain the meaning by using intentionally different words. It's not the same as a translation, and there's nothing wrong with it. If you use a word-for-word, a thought-for-thought, or a paraphrase, however, when you use a paraphrase, keep in mind that an author has come through, and, and in some cases, not all, it's the Bible, it's good that you're reading it, what you may be getting is his commentary on that passage, which my suggestion to you as I close is that you have maybe a word-for-word, thought-for-thought right alongside a paraphrase, and you understand what you read. Application this week, read the Bible intending to understand. This week, read the Bible intending to obey. This week, read the Bible intending to reject the devil's lies. You are an amazing church. You are an absolute gift from God to the pastoral staff. You are a worshiping church. You are a church of the word of God. That is, you not only know it, you apply it to your lives and we don't do so perfectly. Listen. But you are amazing. And as I leave here tonight, in light of what's happened the last couple of days, let's love each other. Let's love our pastors. Let's love one another. Those of us who have different political views, those who have different different theological views, let's take those and put them to the side because, you know, at times like this, God reminds us that we were created for relationship with Him and for one another. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.